How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we are spiritually prepared to worship. As usual, when we go over to Israel, we when we get to Jerusalem, we see quite a few of the mikvahot. That's the plural for mikvah. A mikvah was a pool designed for uh, cleansing. There's about 30 or 40 of them outside the southern steps that going into the um, that was going into the temple. And one of the things that impressed impresses people is that how many times according to ritual purification laws, that an observant Jew had to go into the mikvahot for cleansing. Just like using 1 John 1, 9. We do it again and again and again. That was sort of God's teaching principle, is that so many things can render us ceremonially unclean and so many things render us spiritually unclean that we have to constantly be in the process of cleansing. So 1 John 1, nine says that the way to do that in, re- in reality, not in terms of ritual, is to confess our sins. And we just do that a hundred times or more during the day, or it ought to, because we sin so much. And each time we're out of fellowship and we have to recover and we confess our sins. So we need to keep a short account. So we always begin class with a few moments of silent prayer so we can reinforce that principle for everybody And then I will open in prayer. So let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for your grace. We're thankful for the fact that we have a Savior that has died on the cross for our sins, but he rose from the dead, and we have a victorious Savior who has laid the foundation through his resurrection for our new life in him foundation for understanding that we are been we have been freed from the enslavement to the sin nature and that we can now live as slaves to righteousness rather than slaves to sin as paul describes in romans chapter 6 father at this time we pray for our nation knowing that our president is violating the constitution this evening with his immigration plan and his procedures that violate that, and so few people seem to recognize that that's an issue. We move more and more into a lawless culture and a lawless society, and we as believers are the only ones that have hope, the only ones that have certainty, and the only ones that can address the issue from a foundation of truth. But the problem is that sets us more and more in conflict with the culture around us. We need to learn to stand fast. As Paul says in Romans 12, we need to Uh, not be conformed to the world around us, but be transformed by renewing our minds. And so tonight we come together to study your word, to have our thinking renewed, that we might not think like those around us, but think as you would have us to think. And help us to do that as we study your word this evening. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One thing I'd like to do, by the way, is to thank everybody for the opportunity to be away for a couple of weeks and once again take a group over to, over to uh, Israel. 
It's really hard if you've never been there to understand the dynamic that occurs when you are on the ground. We often talk about this. You've heard it from people in the military that nothing nothing replaces boots on the ground, eyes on the ground intelligence. You can have all the spy satellites, all the technology, all of the other whiz-bang tools that they have out there today, but nothing replaces human intelligence. And the same thing is true when it comes to understanding the Word of God. There are many things that are that come into focus. They're just out of focus if you've never been there. You read and study some things, and you stand in some locations like uh, Mount Gerizim, or you stand in some locations like the on the crest of the ridge at Mount Carmel and look over the valley of Megiddo, there are things that you see spatially that you can't get from looking at a map and you can't get from studying the word just on its on its own. And once you stand there, it's amazing the 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 insights and the it gives you on, on the Word of God and the points that God is making. And you realize there's about five places you can stand in Israel. And when you stand in any of those, in each of those five places or all of them, you pretty much can see all of the areas where all the events of Scripture took place. Just from five locations because Israel is such a little tiny place. It's just a compact a nation. And so many people think it's so large because so many things happen in so many places in the Bible. But if you're standing on, the, on, on Mount Carmel, you can look within about a 45-degree angle, and you can see Nazareth, and you can see Mount Tavor where uh, Deborah and Barak defeated Sisera and the Canaanites, and you're overlooking the whole valley where the Kishon River flooded. If you look a little bit to your left, you see the ridgetop of Mount Carmel where Elijah challenged the uh, priests of Baal and Ashtaroth. If you just move from Nazareth to Mount Tavor, then you uh, see uh, Mount Moreh, which is where uh, Gideon defeated the Midianites. You move just a little bit more to your right, you see... Um, You've seen Ain Harad or the Spring of Harad, which is where Gideon's thinned out the 300. You go just a little bit beyond that because that's at the foot of Mount Gilboa, which is where uh, Saul was defeated by uh, by the uh, Philistines, and that's where Saul took his own life and where Jonathan died. And you move just a little bit more to the right, and you see Beit Sha'an, which is where uh, they the, the people from Beit Sha'an came down and they took the... They decapitated Saul and took his body and hung it up on the walls of the city. And if you just have a really clear day and you look through there, you see all these areas where our Lord ministered during his his lifetime in, in Galilee. And all that's from one location. You move down to Jerusalem, you have another place like that. You go to Mount Nebo, and this time the Lord intervened, and we had such a windy morning. We had to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning in order to to make the the border crossing because it was about a four-hour drive. Plus, we wanted to go to the top of Mount Nebo. And the Lord sent a little wind, about a 50-mile-an-hour wind. We've been in hurricanes, right? It was like that. It was about 40 degrees that morning. We all got up, and we made it there. But that wind blew all the haze and all the dust and everything. I've been there where I've been just barely across the Jordan, and you couldn't even see the outline of the mountains in Jordan from 10 miles away. 
And in fact, there were a couple of days when we were down in, in the uh, along the Dead Sea when we the haze was so bad we couldn't see the mountains on the other side of the of the uh, Dead Sea, but they were so clear from the top of Mount Nebo, we could see the ridge line of the Mount of Olives. It was early early enough in the morning to where the sun, the sun rising in the east was behind us, and it was reflecting off of the buildings on the ridge of the Mount of Olives, and you could see the steeple of the Mount, on the uh, Church of the Ascension, which is at the very crest of the Mount of Olives, and you could see the sun reflecting off of that steeple. Now, God took Moses up there and showed him all the promised land. We couldn't see all the promised land, but we saw a lot of it. And I've been up there before when you could barely see Israel from Mount Nebo. So, and it's not that far. So it was just remarkable. We had a tremendous time. But I wanted to have... John Williamson come up first, and he's going to say a couple of things about what he learned on the trip, and then Gregory Freehoff is going to come up and say a couple of things, and then we're going to get into into Romans. So, John, come on up first. John, John is now at Dallas Seminary, and so we're going to have to, as a con- got turned off somewhere along the way. We're going to have to, uh, can you turn me back on before you turn him on? Okay, am I on? Doesn't sound like it. Anyway, we're going to have to teach John a little bit about how to speak from the pulpit, so this is his first shot to give us a little report. So, John, go ahead. Howdy. Howdy, everybody. Had a great time over in Israel, saw Loads and loads of things. I can't talk about all of, now, all of it right now, but, but I figured we'd just go over Jericho. There's a lot of interesting things about Jericho, and I, it really stood out to me in the trip. Before I talk about the site itself, there's a few things you got to understand about cities in the Middle East, and the Middle East in, in, in Israel. First is water. Every site I went to, one of the first things you'd locate is the source of water. If there wasn't a source of water, there wasn't a settlement. If there was a source of water, there was a settlement. Jericho has three freshwater springs, which is why it was settled. In fact, it was one of the greenest places I saw in all of Israel. There was trees and everything all around it because of all the water. And so, and the second is you got to understand tells. I didn't know I didn't have a great understanding of a tell when I went over to Israel, but a tell is basically a city built on top of a city built on top of a city. The reason why they do this is because the water. Where there's water, you can have settlement. So a, a tail has a very distinct shape. It looks kind of, it has a profile of a trapezoid. It's got a it's got real steep slopes and a kind of a flat top. So you can uh, if you can train a five year old, he can go and shoot, see a tail like, hey, there was an old city there. And as you drive by, we 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 see a few of them that weren't dug, haven't been dug up. The reason why you have a tail, it had a trapezoid shape, is because uh, basically because of battering rams. When they first built their, their city walls on the on the plain, for defense, this, uh, invaders went inv- invented the battering ram, and they can go and knock down the walls and get in there and kill everybody. So what they did to def- defend against battering rams is they go and build this retaining wall, fill it with dirt, and then uh, to make a make a little plateau, and they, then they build their defensive walls on top. Let's see. Yeah, you can see th- here's a little illustration of Jericho. You got the retaining wall. Where the man is standing, that's uh, it's not but that that's mainly built for to have earth there to build up 
the structure to build the city on. Then you have the, the, uh, Jericho, we had two city walls. You had the lower city wall right above the retaining wall and the upper city wall, which is more the citadel, the city. city. So it, what, what I want to talk about, and particularly in Jericho, I'm going to read from Joshua chapter 6, verse 20. You all know about Jericho. Joshua and the people marched around the city a number of times, blowing the trumpets, and, and then eventually on, this, uh, they, on verse 20 says, So the people shouted, and the priests blew the trumpets, and it came about when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Now, the, see that the, the steepness of that retaining wall? You can't run straight in the city over that wall. There's, it was a, there's always a, a fairly narrow winding path to get up on, onto these tells. But one thing to note, when the city walls fell down, they fell down like a ramp all around the city, which I find kind of ironic. These walls that were meant to defend the city were the ramp that people could charge up over the retaining wall and charge straight into the city, straight ahead. It was uh, really quite impressive. You got here... You see, that's, that, that's a picture of the retaining wall, the, the blocks there. And in the, in, the, in the foreground, you see this, these clay structures. It was built later out of the stone and out of the clay from the, from the upper wall, from the lower wall, from that's, that old city wall right above the retaining wall. After the, that fell down, the, the, when, it, when Jericho was rebuilt, people get, gathered material from that, that wall and made the, uh, the structures at the bottom. So uh, it fits very well with the biblical view. Here we have a picture of burnt grain from Kathleen Kenyon. She was one of the second person to excavate Jericho. This is a burnt grain is because uh, we, we know that we know this is significant because the uh, conquest of Jericho happened in the harvest season, and it happened quickly. If it was a, a long drawn out thing, they would uh, they would have been able to squirrel away their grain or, or leave. With, with their food, but they didn't have time to save their food. There was a lot of burnt grain found in the city, which attests to its quick destruction. Let's see. Here, when you're excavating a tell, it's kind of like a layer cake. You have a, you might, you'll have a white layer, maybe a black layer, you know, and you can tell a little bit about what happened in each layer based on how, how the layers look. We got the arrows pointing to. It's kind of hard to see. Is this real black ch ch burned layer? It's a it's a burn layer, that's caused by charcoal by the carbon scarring on, on a fire, and the, the pottery found there. There's been a little bit of there's been a little bit of debate about the pottery, but long story short, that pottery dates back to about the 50, about 1400 B.C., which is about the time of the of the conquest of the land. So. Uh, so Anyway, yeah, we, there's a lot more to be said about John Garstang, who was the first to uh, excavate, and Kathleen Kenyon and John and Woods, and all on all the arguments. But long story short, what I want you to take away from Jericho is that the Bible said we should find walls knocked down, a, a sort of a ramp where everyone could charge forward, the burned uh, grain, the bur uh, dis destruction by fire, and we find all that. Jericho is often touted as the uh, number one problem the Bible has archaeologically. But as we see here, the Bible is to be trusted in everything it touches upon. Thank you. Good job, John. All right, Greg's going to come up.
This slide, uh, unfortunately, it shows up better on the computer. It shows up better. It's, we get limited by the 10-year-old projectors that we have. It doesn't have as great definition, but there's a dark line right here that you can see. And one other thing John didn't quite make clear, when this wall fell down, it fell forward. And so that created a ramp. And as he pointed out from Joshua 6, the Israelites could then just run straight up the debris from that wall, formed a ramp for them, and they could just run right into the city. Because at, at the time, that what they discovered was a number of homes and buildings were constructed between the lower wall and the upper wall. So as John pointed out, it really does uh, substantiate what the Scripture says about how uh, J- Joshua defeated uh, the forces of Jericho. Okay, Greg's going to talk just a minute about his impressions from the trip. Hey, everybody. Uh, not quite as well prepared as John was. Don't have any slides or anything. Um, I just want to give a, a quick overview of what uh, what really uh, hit me, you know, really solidified, you know, things that things that I've studied and everything. Um, we uh, we had a uh, guide who's been doing a lot of excavations, archaeological things over there, and um, we, we, we he took us over to the the location of Shechem or Shechem as they call it, um, and and just the everything that happened there, you know, it, God gave the, the the covenant to Abraham there, and then the, the reaffirmation of the covenant there with the you know hill of of blessing, blessings and cursings, you know, Israelites ca- talking back and forth uh, those things, and then. When Christ came, he he talked to the uh, the woman at the well, you know, the, the the Samaritan woman there, you know, just all those different things happened all, all in that one spot, and it it really had an impression on me that you know, like like Robbie was saying, that everything is just so small in in this one small area, and, and all these things happen all in this this tiny area, and you know, being from Houston, we think of things as all spread out and and all over the place, but it's it's not that way there, um, um, so that was very interesting and. And uh, one of the things that, that uh, Joel really uh, impressed upon me with was he would he would say, you know, the Bible says in this area we'll find these things. And then when they go and they dig, that's exactly what they find. There's no question that that, uh, you know, what the Bible says is true, because, I mean, we can we can see from the results from their work, you know, uh, in I think it was uh, Ahab's palace. Uh, it says that there's um, ivory. In, in his palace for de- decoration and everything, and that's kind of a rare thing. And and when they when they dug that area, that's exactly what they found. And they you know they have the pieces that they showed images of that are in the museums, and it was just just you know just incredible just to see that that uh, all that kind of stuff. And um, so so that was that was one of the things that I, I found just really really impressive, and you know it just solidifies that, that the word of God is what it says it is. It's true, and you can you can depend on it 100 percent. That's about it for me. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. That's one of the things that's a real. Am I on? I don't hear. I don't hear myself coming out of the speaker. Yes, I just plugged into that. Seems plugged in. Oh, there we go. There we go. Okay. All right. Um, that's one of the things that really comes across when you go on a trip of this nature is you go to the biblical sites and you see what's there. And it brings it out in a fresh way 
And what Greg was pointing out, as we stood on Mount Gerizim, you can look down and you see skim. That's how the Hebrew Hebrew pronunciation, there's no E at the beginning. It's just S-H-C-H-E-M, skim. And that's where, of course, uh, Abraham stopped when he first came into the land, Genesis 12, uh, 6, and he built an altar. God reconfirmed the covenant there. He left, 12, 7, he goes down to between Bethel and Ai, and we drove in the highway just, just right next to the hill where he and Sarah would have camped. And it just, it's all becomes so very real, and you realize how, once again, how close everything is. In, in terms of these locations. And we'll talk some more about this. I'm going to have some slides and a few things to point out when we uh, probably next Tuesday night, we've had a little time to recover and get organized. Let's go to Romans 16. Tonight we're going to finish up Romans, looking at the last section that we find here in verses 25 through 27. In verses 25 through 27. What's interesting here that um, in some ancient versions, Romans 16, 25 to 27 occurs after 14:23. It also shows up in a couple of minor versions in a different location in chapter uh, chapter 15. But in most versions, it is at the end of, of Romans chapter 16. So it's not a question of whether it belongs in Romans. It's more a question of where it belongs in Romans. But it probably belongs at the very end as Paul is wrapping up what he is saying to to the Romans. So I just want to go over the last part of it. Last time I think we got through verse 20. So I want to look at this final greetings from verses 21 through 24. There he says... Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sospater, my countrymen, greet you. And then there's a note from his amanuensis. There's a good word for people. Amanuensis, his secretary, as it were, the one who is writing down the epistle as he's dictating it, is named Tertius, who wrote this epistle. Greet you in the Lord. So Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Sospater are with him. Then he says in verse 23, Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the treasure of the city, greet you, and Quartus, a brother. And then he closes with the statement, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now in this first verse, he mentions Timothy. Timothy, who is often referred to as a young man. In Jewish culture, a young man was someone under the age of 40. Now, young is often relative. If you're 90, you may be thinking of someone who's 60 is rather young, especially if you've known them your whole life. And it may be that if you're 50, you think of somebody who's 40 is rather young because you've known them their whole life. But in Jewish culture, you became a presbyteros, an elder, roughly around the age of 40. So 40 was a dividing line, and the average age was usually around 65 to 70 was the average life expectancy. So Timothy 
is considered young, but Timothy is probably in his middle to late 30s at this point. So he's not exactly a wet-behind-the-ears young kid like John is. You know, he was a little older, and he had some experience, uh, a lot of experience, working with the Apostle Paul, and Paul sent him on a lot of missions, solving problems and teaching the Word. And so at this point, when Paul is writing Romans, writing uh, from Corinth, Timothy is with him along with uh, these others that are mentioned. We know little about them, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, but he says that they were his countrymen. So some people think this Lucius might be Luke, but there's a lot of discussion over whether Luke was a Gentile or a uh, Jew. He was likely a Gentile, I believe, although evidence isn't exactly clear. But here it's very clear that this Lucius is Jewish, and it's probably not Luke because he would have used a different form of the name. So this is referring to someone. Jason is the name of the man who uh, who took care of Paul and hosted him in his home in Thessalonica and is very likely the same Jason. And this uh, Sosipater is probably a, another way of spelling Sopater, who was in Berea. Remember when Paul uh, traveled on his second missionary journey, he went from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea and then to Athens. And so these were leaders in those congregations who had accompanied him uh, down to Corinth. And so he is, they are with him. And they would have known a few people who were in the congregation of Romans, and so he sends a greeting from them. Verse 22, as I pointed out already in the reading, Tertius, who writes his, the epistle as his amanuensis, also inserts his greeting at this particular point. And this was something that was a standard practice in the ancient world where someone would write, write out the letter for the person who was uh, dictating it, and Paul would have dictated it, and Tertius would have written it out. Then we have a reference in verses 23 to Gaius and to Erastus, who's the treasurer of the city. So this is someone who's got a significant role in the city of, of Corinth. And they also greet him, and then another believer by the name of Quartus. We don't know uh, anything more about them. Uh, other than their their listing here, this uh, Gaius who uh, hosts Paul is very likely the person mentioned in Acts eighteen seven, by, and his name was Gaius uh, Titius Justus, and his house was next door to the synagogue. But some of these names were common, so it's a little bit uncertain exactly uh, the as to the exact identification. Then in verse 24, Paul concludes with this statement related to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is common in Paul to conclude with a statement like this. Uh, I went through this the last time. I'll do it again. In 1 Corinthians 16, 23, Paul concludes 1 Corinthians saying, The grace of our Lord Jesus be with, uh, be with you. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians 6.18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Ephesians 6.24, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. 
Philippians 4.23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Colossians 4.18, grace be with you. 1 Thessalonians 5.28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 2 Thess 3.18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 1 Timothy 6.21, grace be with you. 2 Timothy 4.22, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. Titus 3.15, grace be with you all. And finally, Philemon 25, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So we see in all of these epistles, Paul closes with this emphasis on the grace of God. And grace is one of those vital concepts in Paul's understanding of the gospel. Grace means unmerited favor. And one thing that really strikes you when you take a trip in in the older part of Europe, the, where you have older uh, established churches that have been influenced by Greek Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, some of the other uh, Armenian Orthodox or Assyrian Orthodox. Yes, indeed, there are still people who consider themselves Assyrians over in the Middle East, you realize how horrible, how horrible legalism is. We don't have a clue here. You can go to a Greek Orthodox or a Roman Catholic church in the U.S., but you don't see anything like what you see over in Italy or over in Greece or in any of the countries in, in the Middle East with all of the uh, all of the different rituals and all the different icons and the smells and the bells and, and all of the, the, the ritual that, that is just, it's just burdensome. I mean, I think you can talk to just about anybody who's taken a trip over to Israel, and when you go in these churches, whether it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem or the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem or some of the other churches up in Galilee, it's just oppressive. And you just come away saying, just thank God for grace. And and then you look at the the kind of legalism that, that still dominates in a lot of the Hasidic or Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox among Israel, and you realize what a burden it is. And when Jesus talked about the fact that the that the law was like a yoke, it was a heavy burden uh, to the people. And yet, and Paul comes along with this wonderful message of grace that we don't do anything to earn or deserve God's God's favor. God has freely given it to us because Jesus Christ did all of the work. And so he continuously emphasizes the importance of grace. And we should as well. Grace should characterize our lives. Now we come to the final benediction in Romans sixteen twenty-five to 31. And I just want to read these verses. The, the under, it's important when you look at a complex sentence like this to get to the heart of the sentence. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Now, when we look at this, we ought to look at this three-verse section here and say, well, what's the main idea? There are a lot of grammatically dependent clauses here. It starts off, now to him. 
Well, what's the subject? To him is in the dative, but we don't have a main verb yet telling us what the action is. Now to him. And then the next phrase defines him. He's the one who's able to establish you according to my gospel and according to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Then we have another phrase, another prepositional phrase, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. We still haven't figured out what the main verb is. But now, so now we have a contrast. He's able to establish you according to the revelation of the mystery, but now made manifest. The mystery was something that wasn't revealed, but now something has been revealed, and it's revealed by the prophetic scriptures. Now, let me ask you, what are the prophetic scriptures? Is this the Old Testament or is this the New Testament? You have to read it pretty carefully to figure it out. And that's important to understand what Paul is saying. It's not the Old Testament. Now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. That's not the Old Testament. That's the New Testament, as we'll see when we get there. And then you have another phrase, according to the commandment of the everlasting God. Then we finally get to Romans 16, 27, to God. See, he's picking up where he started in verse 25, now to him. And then he goes through almost two whole verses just describing what's so significant about the him, about God the Father. And we get down to verse um, verse 27. He finally goes back to that. He says to God. And then again he gets distracted by describing God a little more as the one who is only wise. And then he finally gets to a verb. Our finite, or, or, or to the main noun, be, is supplied actually to make sense. It's not in the original. Glory. Glory is the only noun that we've come up to so far that's in the nominative case that can be the subject of the clause. So what we see here is the the dative or the direction of the action of the verb is expressed in verse 25 is to God. But what is to God? What is given to God? See, basic grammar is so important in understanding the Scriptures. Back in the seventh grade or sixth grade, you learned something about direct objects and indirect objects, and it may have gone right over your head. Whenever you have a verb or any kind of action, it is always directed to or toward someone. Okay, so if you give a gift, what you're giving is a gift. That's the object of the verb. That's usually expressed in the accusative case. Then you have, if you're giving someone a gift, you're giving a gift to your husband, your wife, your child, your friend. That's your indirect object. That's what you have here at the beginning. The him is in the dative case, which expresses the indirect object. And what we have here is the noun for glory is in the nominative case, which indicates that's the subject of an unstated verb. That's the only noun here that can be it. So, so that can be the subject. So what we see is that Paul is saying now, as he brings it to a conclusion, glory to God. You look at these three verses, that's the guts of what Paul is saying. That's the core statement. That's your independent clause. Paul is saying we need to glorify God. We need to give glory to God because God alone is the one who makes a difference in our lives. 
And that's why he expands upon the concept of deity on God the Father so much in these three verses. In verse 25 and 26, all of that, all of those terms from the who is able down to the for obedience to faith all describes the him. Why God the Father glorifying God is so important because of who he is and what he has done. And verse 27, he goes back to the beginning, restates to God, and then again, he's going to get distracted by saying more things about God. We can't understand God enough, and the more we understand who he is, the more we realize that he alone is the one who is able to provide everything for us. So let's break this down a little bit. On this slide, I'm going to give you the seven basic points. You don't need to worry about writing all of them down right now because I'm going to break them down one at a time. First of all, what Paul is saying is because God, that is Paul's God, Moses' God, is the only one able to make a stand. That's why we glorify God, because God alone, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Allah, not some nebulous force out in the universe, not nature, not um, not the universe, but it is the personal infinite God of Paul, who is the God of Moses, who is the only one who is able to establish us, to make us stable, as we'll see. Second thing he emphasizes in this in verse twenty five is that we're established according to my gospel, Paul says. What's so significant about the phrase, my gospel? We'll look at that. Third, the gospel message that Paul talks about relates to the next to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. He says, now to him who is able, first of all, able to establish you, second, according to my gospel, and the third thing he says, and the preaching or the proclamation of Jesus Christ. The fourth thing he says is that this is related to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. So the fourth point is that this is related to the revelation of the mystery doctrine of the church age, which had never previously been disclosed. Since the world began, God the Father had kept this secret. It had not been disclosed even partially, even a little bit. In the Old Testament, it is a new revelation, and we've come to understand that related to this term mystery, that it doesn't refer to an enigma, it doesn't refer to a puzzle, it doesn't refer to something that's only partially revealed or incompletely revealed, it refers to something that's never been revealed, never been disclosed at all at any time in the past. Fifth thing that Paul states here is that this present gospel message, this mystery doctrine, was made clear or revealed or disclosed in the New Testament scriptures. Verse 26, but now, not then, but now that is in this present dispensation, made manifest. And he says that this was now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures... Now, we would almost take a knee-jerk response and say the prophetic scriptures would refer to the Old Testament. But here, it's, it's not. The Old Testament was written for Israel primarily. 
He says the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations. We don't see an emphasis on the goyim, on the ethnoi, on the Gentiles until we get into the era after the day of Pentecost, after Acts. So that this is relating to the New Testament, not the Old Testament, because the mystery doctrine wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. Then sixth, he said this mystery, which was held back until the present age by the commandment of the everlasting God. And this is a very interesting phrase that we find in the Greek because it, it indicates uh, this, the, this timelessness to this particular command. So God mandates this, that this is not going to be revealed. And then finally, this mystery, understanding this revelation, entails a commandment to everyone. It because the last statement is that this mystery revelation is for obedience to the faith. It implies that we are to be obedient to something. So there is a commandment embedded in the mystery doctrine. All right, let's break this down. First of all, Paul emphasizes this because God is the only one who is able to make us stand. This is so important. Romans 16.25 begins, Now to him, that is to God the Father, who is able to establish you. That's that idea. It's the Greek verb sterizo. And here it's an aorist active infinitive which indicates his purpose. His purpose is to make us stand. Here it's completing the concept of the, the verb to, uh, able, defining who he is, his power. Whenever you see that word for able, dunamis or dunameo is a verb, it emphasizes God's power, his omnipotence. He is the one who has the power and the only one who has the power to make us stand, to establish us. And the word sterizo has a wide range of meaning. It indicates making us stable. And I think that's the core idea here for us as believers is the only way we can have stability in an unstable universe and an unstable, ever-changing world, a world that is dominated by chaos. We have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. We can't count on anything. Many of us have had hopes and dreams thinking that, Somehow the past in the United States was uh, going to continue into the future, but we realize that, that the people in this country who are growing increasingly ignorant of our history have elected leaders who are willingly violating the Constitution of this country, and we don't seem to be able to elect leaders who know how to do anything about it. So now we have a president who is acting like a monarch or an emperor and is boldly flaunting the Constitution this very night. And there's not anything that we can do about it. This is the same pattern that was uh, seen in, in ancient Rome. It's the same pattern that has been repeated down through the ages as leaders uh, take, take office and people become lazy and complacent and are no longer involved, no longer watching over their government. And what we see in the cycles of civilization is when people become uh, become 
become ignorant of what's going on and they're no longer watching, that they once again return to the status of slaves to government, which is exactly what this president entails, intends to do. By his actions, he's becoming a criminal, but no one seems to care, and if they do, they don't have the power to do anything about it. The only way we're going to have stability in life is when we base our life on the doctrine of God's word. That's the only thing that doesn't change. And we've had 200 years of wonderful history in this country. Maybe there'll be a change in the future, but if things continue the way they do, the only way that you and I are going to survive with joy and happiness is if we base that upon the word of God. And that means we have to thoroughly know the word of God. This idea of being established really frames or brackets Romans. In Romans 1.11, in the introduction, Paul said, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, that is, his teaching, so that you may be established. The key to being established is to study the word, is to know what God has revealed to us. So in the introduction, Paul says he's going to impart some spiritual gift to them, that is his gift of apostleship and teaching, so that they can be established. And at his conclusion, he says that ultimately it is God who is the one who establishes us. We see this in a number of other passages where Paul uses this word. He only uses it twice in Romans. In First Thessalonians, he used it several times. He said he sent Timothy... Back to the Thessalonians, we saw in his second missionary journey, he sent Timothy and others back, and he sent him back to establish them and to encourage them concerning their faith, that is, the content of what they believed. So the way Timothy helped in the process of establishing them was to teach the word. Now, what we see in Paul's benediction in Romans 16.25 is ultimately God is the one who establishes us. But how does he do that? What's the means that he uses? Well, it's through his word. It's through his word that communicates the content of our faith. In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, Paul used the verb again. He says, so that he may establish you. Again, emphasizing it is God who is the one ultimately who provides stability in our lives. In 2 Thessalonians, he uses the term twice. In 2 Thessalonians 2.17, he said, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Who is it that comforts us and who establishes us? It's God the Father. 2 Thessalonians 3.3, But the Lord is faithful who will establish you. Again, it is only God who can establish you. And here the Lord refers to could be God the Father. It's a little ambiguous. Or it could be the Lord Jesus Christ. But ultimately, it's deity. God is the Father and God the Son are one, so it can refer to either or both. Then in James 5, 8, he says, you also be patient, establish your hearts. Well, the verb there, establish, is an imperative. It's a second-person plural imperative telling us that we have a role in establishing ourselves. It's not just up to God. He's ultimately the only basis for stability, but we we have to be involved as well. First Peter 5.10, he says, May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So here it relates to God the Father's role again. So primarily it's God the Father's role, but not at the expense of our volition. 
We see that in many places. First Thessalonians 11 or 3:11 to 13 states that. James 5:8, as I pointed out, uses the word. It's an aorist active imperative. Now, this is where grammar plays an important role. It's not a passive concept. You take an active role in establishing yourself. You have to make a decision as to whether or not you are going to study the Word of God and apply it in your life. It's not something that just happens automatically. One of the problems that we have is that there's been an overemphasis in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled by the Spirit, a misdirection and a misemphasis on this. Be filled is a passive voice verb. A lot of people think that all they have to do to be filled by the Holy Spirit is to confess their sins. That's a starting point. Let me use an illustration. It's like a house. The only place that you're going to ever get fed is if you're inside your home. If you're outside your home, there's no food. Inside the house, there's food and growth takes place. Confession is uh, comparable to getting back inside the house. But just being inside the house doesn't mean you're going to stay there. Just being back inside the house doesn't mean you're going to eat. It just puts you in a position where now you can find food and you can eat. But it doesn't automatically mean you're going to be fed, and it doesn't automatically mean you're going to grow. It just puts you in the place where food is available and growth can take place. See, we have other terms that are comparable and are related to being filled by the Spirit. We've studied this so many times. We're filled by the Spirit. What are we filled with? Not the Spirit. He's the means of filling. The content of filling is the Word of God. Now, a comparable term is abide in me. If we put it in the vernacular, Jesus is saying, stay in me. Stay there. Don't get out. Stay there. Abide in me. When we sin, we're out of fellowship. That's the term that we use. What that means is we're now walking by the sin nature. We're living our lives by the sin nature. When we confess our sin, it restores us to a position where we can walk by the Spirit. That's the third paragraph. Walking by the Spirit is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day decision, step-by-step. How do we walk? One step at a time. On the trip to Israel, this time I had a new app on my iPhone called Pacer. And it measured our steps. Every day people wanted to know, how many steps did we take today? We would take between 13,000 and 23,000 steps a day. When we, The day we did all of our hiking at Petra, we covered 23,700 and something steps. I totaled them all up on the way home. And we had somewhere in the order of 180 to 185,000 steps for the whole trip, which roughly works out to somewhere between 75 to 80 miles. We didn't do it all at once, and everybody had a great time doing it, and everybody really did a fabulous job on, on the trip. You have to do something to walk off all those magnum bars, you know. We had, a, we had a great time, but you do it one step at a time. You don't just sit there and go, oh, golly, I'm going to walk 80 miles during the next two weeks. No, you just look at all the fun things you're going to do that day, and you go out and you do them, and at the end of the day, you realize you walked about 17, 18, or 19,000 steps. Wow, that's impressive, six or seven miles. The next day, you do it again. You have a lot of fun, but 
it's one step at a time. Each day, you, and that's the same thing in the Christian life, it's one step at a time. Notice, abiding in me is an active voice verb. That means you do the action. You abide. It's up to you to abide in Christ. It's up to me to abide in Christ. It's up to our volition to say, I'm going to stay in fellowship. Walking by the Spirit means I've got to make a decision to walk by the Spirit each and every day. It's not something that if I confess my sins, I'm, I'm just being filled by the Spirit, and it's all going to happen to me, and the Holy Spirit's going to make decisions, and I'm just going to automatically grow. It's amazing how many Christians think that because they think that confession just basically means now it puts me back in a position where if I just sit in Bible class and listen, I'm going to grow. Guess what? You're wrong. You can sit in Bible class till the cows come home, and unless you're engaging your volition to be obedient moment by moment and day by day, you're not going to grow. You may have 15,000 notebooks filled with all the doctrines in the world, but that doesn't mean you're going anywhere or you've gone anywhere in your Christian life. It just means you know a lot, but it doesn't mean you're implementing it, and implementation or application is the end result. And that means we have to also walk in the light, that is, in the light of God's Word. Again, it's an active voice verb. So the Holy, so we have to make ourselves available to the Holy Spirit to fill us with the Word, but then we have to apply it. That's walking, it's abiding, it's walking in the light. So, we have to, to in order to obey the Word, we have to walk by the Spirit. Now watch this. If you're going to walk by the Spirit, you have to obey the Word. Jesus said, how do we know if we love God? We obey Him. Now, how do we, what do we have to do to be able to obey the Word? We have to know the Word. You have to know the Word to obey the Word. In order to know the Word, you first have to learn the Word. You have to learn the Word to know the Word. If you're not in Bible class or you're not listening online regularly, you're not learning the Word. If you're not learning the Word, you won't know the Word. If you don't know the Word, you won't obey the Word. And if you don't obey the Word, you're not going to be walking by the Spirit. So you have to listen to the teaching of God's Word in order to learn the Word. Now, that's just all related to that first point of how we become established. It's according to Paul's Gospel. That's what he says in Romans 2.16. In the day when God, uh, at the very beginning of the book, he said, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, when is this going to take place? In the day. When is that? That's at the judgment seat of Christ. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Also, it could refer to, in times, uh, great white throne judgment in terms of eternal destiny. But it's according to my gospel. And what I'm pointing out here is the term gospel for Paul has a much broader implication than simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It incorporates everything that flows from that in terms of our spiritual life. But what is Paul's gospel? There are some people who think that the apostle Paul invented Christianity, not Jesus. You often hear this in a Jewish context. Um, Greg mentioned a guide we had the day we went into Samaria, Joel Kramer. And Joel said he was one of three guys that he knew studying archaeology in Israel right now. He's been working on his doctorate, his master's and his doctorate over there for the last uh, eight years. And he said that he had only come to know two other men 
who were committed to biblical infallibility in terms of, of biblical archaeology. One of them is a young man who just received his doctorate from the University of South Africa in archaeology by the name of Titus Kennedy. His father is Todd Kennedy, who's the pastor of Spokane Bible Church and has been on the board for Chafer Seminary, and some of you know Todd Kennedy, and um, he's been involved. So his son is very active and, and is very close. That's how I came to know, uh, know Joel, who, who took us around. The other, was a, the other guy that he mentioned was a guy by the name of Andrew Cross. When I was in Israel with that APAC group in May of 2012, I stayed a, a, about three days after the trip, and Joel was supposed to guide me into Samaria, but he got called in that day for a, for a meeting over his visa. So he sent one of his friends, a young man by the name of Andrew Cross. I never made the connection, but he is John Cross's son. John Cross, who is the head of Goodseed, used to be on the board of directors for, or the governing board for Chafer Seminary. And a young guy committed to the inerrancy and fallibility of God's word and biblical archaeology. But here he is over in Jerusalem, and a lot of Christians go over there. And he said that it's amazing how how many of them have their faith shipwrecked by the stuff that is taught in some of the classrooms over there. And he's emphasized, and he he said one of the things that's taught is that Paul invented Christianity, not Jesus. So people will go to this. But Paul talks about the gospel many different ways. In Galatians 1, he says he received his gospel not from man, that is not from the other apostles, but through Jesus Christ who revealed himself to Paul in Acts chapter 9. Uh, through Jesus Christ and God the Father raised him from the dead. He goes on to talk about the fact that there's only one gospel and that the Galatian believers had deserted to a different or another kind of gospel, a heteros gospel. We know the word heteros from heterosexual. Somebody who is heterosexual is somebody who has a relationship with somebody of the opposite sex, somebody who's different. If not, then they are homosexual and they have a relationship with someone of the same sex. So this is the word heteros here, a different kind of gospel. And then Paul says it's not another gospel, alas, meaning another of the same kind, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And so he says there's only one gospel. Later he goes on to say that this gospel that he preached, the gospel which is preached by me, is not according to man in Galatians 1.11. And in one twelve he says, I didn't receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's Jesus Christ's gospel, not Paul's gospel. He calls it that in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, he talks about proclaiming Christ's gospel. In 2 Corinthians 9.13, he talks about the gospel of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 10.14, at the end there, he talks about the gospel of Christ. It's Christ's gospel, but it's also God's gospel. In Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separate to the gospel of God. The gospel of God is the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ, Paul says, is his gospel. Romans fifteen sixteen also talks about the gospel of God. First uh, Thessalonians two two talks about the gospel of God, as does First Thessalonians two eight. So this is the gospel message that is related to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. The word there is kerugma, indicating something that is proclaimed. 
of Jesus Christ. So it's, that's why it's called Jesus Christ Gospel, because it's about him. The fourth thing, as I pointed out, is that, that he goes on to say at the end of verse 25, according to the revelation of the mystery. A mystery is a previously unrevealed or undisclosed idea. So something new is disclosed. That's the mystery doctrine related to the church age. What happens in the church age? That all believers, Jew and Gentile, are united in Christ, where there's no distinction. That's Ephesians chapter 2. That's what Romans 14 and 15 were all about, is the, the dealing with the differences between Jewish believers and Gentile believers, and that they needed to learn to love one another. So he says, as part of his benediction, that according to the revelation of the mystery, which had been kept secret since the world began, God in his foreknowledge before the foundation of the earth had planned for the church age and what would be accomplished in Christ. So the mystery describes these pre- this previously unrevealed information, not partially disclosed information or prophetic material related to the Messiah in the Old Testament. The fifth idea that he has here is that this present gospel message was made through the Old Test, through the New Testament scriptures, which is where we learn of the mystery of the body of Christ. It's not Old Testament, but New Testament. It was made known to all the nations, according to Romans sixteen twenty six. And that this was according to the commandment of the everlasting God. So God has established this within his decrees. So that this would not be revealed until after Christ was rejected by the, by the Israel, by Israel and crucified, buried and rose again the third day. The result of that mystery doctrine, our new position in Christ, is that it entails a responsibility for every believer. God expects us to be obedient to the content of the faith, not faith in Christ, but the whole body of Christian doctrine. This is seen, again, as a reflection of what Paul says at the beginning of Romans. In Romans 1.5, he says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship for what? For obedience. See, some people think that grace means we don't have to be obedient. It's all free. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you're not obedient to get salvation, but you're obedient because you have already received salvation and because it's through obedience that we grow and mature as believers. So we are to be obedient to the faith, that is the body of doctrine that has been revealed to us among all the nations as we are among all the various Gentile nations around the world. And in Ephesians 2.10 which comes after one of the great passages on grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we stop there and we say, see, there are no works involved. There are no works involved in salvation. There's no meritorious works involved in sanctification. But we are to work. We are to serve. We are to grow. We are to engage our volition. And that's what Paul says in the very next verse, which is often forgotten. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for a purpose. What? For good works. Not so that you can just live your life the way you want to, because now that your eternal destiny is secure, it really doesn't matter. After all, I'll just use 1 John 1, 9, and I'll be cleansed. 
That's not what Paul indicates. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're to walk by the Spirit. We should, we're to walk in the light. We are to walk and have our life characterized by good works. This is how Paul concludes the, the gospel of Romans. And then he says, to God. And when he comes to this conclusion, he says, to God, who alone is wise. Now, a lot of translations indicate that what Paul is saying is that God alone is wise. He is saying that. But I think he is saying more than that. He is saying to the only God who alone is wise. He's emphasizing the uniqueness of God, the uniqueness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it would be better, as a few have suggested, that it be translated to the only God who alone is all-wise, who alone is omniscient. And because he is omniscient, he has been able to give to us everything that we need for our spiritual life. Romans says a lot about justification, but it doesn't stop with the gospel of justification. It goes on to talk about sanctification and our need to grow and mature as believers. And this is the heart of Romans. It lays the foundation in understanding the gospel of justification, but goes on to emphasize the fact that we need to be uh, we need to be sanctified. We need to grow to spiritual maturity because that's where the action is. It's becoming a mature adult, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's the last section in Romans. So with that, we bring our study of Romans to a conclusion. And after Thanksgiving, because we won't have class next Thursday night, after Thanksgiving, we will begin a study of the Gospel according to Samuel, First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your grace, to be reminded of your power, to be reminded that you and you alone can establish us, can give us stability in this life. But, Father, we recognize that that is not done apart from our volition. You don't just stamp, snap your fingers. We don't just confess our sins and it automatically happens. We have to engage our volition day in, day out, step by step, day by day, living according to your word. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to do that, that we might not be uh, passive in our Christian life, but that we might be actively engaged in trusting you, learning your word, and applying it consistently. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.